Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, we now come to the epistles that follow the book of Romans. In this episode, I will tackle a huge chunk of the New Testament as I move from 1 Corinthians through Jude. In general, all the books we discuss today will show us how to apply all of the great doctrinal truths communicated in Romans. Hence, 1 Corinthians through Jude answer specific questions and tackle common dilemmas as to how the Christian is to live everyday life now that they are regenerated believers and obey Christ as Lord. This understanding impacts how Christians' lives play out in relation to God, in marriages, in families, in churches, in society, and in the world at large. The first two epistles I'll discuss are 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which were letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to those people in the church at Corinth. The city of Corinth was located in what we would call modern-day Greece. It was a busy commercial shipping city because it stood in between two harbors on either side of an isthmus. The population of Corinth was estimated to be in excess of 400,000 people, which was a staggering size for a city that existed 2,000 years ago. Corinth was filled with a multitude of people from all over the known world of diverse nationalities and ethnicities. The city was famous for a magnificent temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. The temple actually employed more than 1,000 temple prostitutes. I describe all of this historical background to illustrate that Corinth was a big, diverse, pluralistic, and very pagan city. It was a place that people in the ancient world came to have fun, so it is not unreasonable to call Corinth the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It's no surprise, then, that the church of Corinth was notorious for behaving badly and doing things that would make people blush even today. For example, people got drunk at communion, members were suing one another in pagan courts, and one man was even having an incestuous relationship, and the church leaders were not doing anything about it. The church was also divided because there were many cliques in the church, and people tried to leverage their gifts for self-promotion. So, when people tell me about dysfunctional churches in the present, I am never ever surprised because the Bible told me about dysfunctional churches first. In fact, there's an old saying, if you ever do find a perfect church, don't join because you'll ruin their reputation. The Bible sets the ideal of what a church should be, but reality always falls short. Resultantly, Paul's letters to the Corinthians were written to correct to correct many of the errors and misunderstandings that crept into the church. People wrote to Paul and wanted answers to moral, political, and social issues, but Paul's response in these epistles was that once Christ is Lord of the church, all of these peripheral matters subordinate themselves to him. All of the problems the Corinthians were having were just symptoms. The root disease was the lack of lordship of Jesus. Christ's lordship is never a dictatorship. Rather, his servants serve him out of love and therefore serve other servants in love. This helps to explain why in the middle of correcting the Corinthians, Paul writes the famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. There, Paul says if the church does not have love, there is no point. 
Of course, the most fitting example of love in action is our Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 3 to 8 says, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be buried, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1-4, to Paul details proper doctrine and then spends the next 12 chapters detailing the application of that doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15 is a very important chapter because Paul sets forth the doctrine of the resurrection. He details how the resurrection is prominent in the gospel, sets out proofs for the resurrection, and how the resurrection is effectual in the lives of believers. Again, this chapter is crucially important because without the resurrection, the Christian faith crumbles. That is, if the resurrection is not true, then the Bible is lying to us and cannot be trusted. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12-22, the text says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to correct, but he does so specifically to clarify the ministry within the church. In the first seven chapters, Paul speaks about basic Christian living. In chapters 8 to 9, he talks about Christian giving. And in chapters 10 to 13, he defends his apostleship. In fact, in contrast to the boastful Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 21 to 30, Paul champions his authority as a legitimate servant leader based upon how he has suffered for Christ. Based upon his number of imprisonments, times beaten, episodes in which his life was in danger, numbers of times lashed, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, sleepless, hungry, and thirsty. In 2 Corinthians 11.30, he writes, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. This is a sobering reminder to the church today. Just imagine what would happen if a potential church leader went on an interview and instead of being asked, how many years of seminary have you attended, they were asked, tell us about how much you have suffered in faithful service to your Lord and Savior. The next book we'll talk about is the Epistle to the Galatians. And the big idea of the book of Galatians is justification by faith alone. 
Understanding Galatians is very straightforward once you understand why it was written. It was written by the Apostle Paul not to correct bad behavior, but to correct bad doctrine. Paul was writing this letter to the church in Galatia in order to fight the Judaizers. This group was trying to lure Christians away from the true gospel and toward legalism, where a person earned their way to heaven based upon following rules. In other words, the Judaizers were trying to convince the Galatians that they are justified by works. Paul fiercely rebukes this false doctrine and states that we are justified by faith alone. History tells us that Galatians was the favorite epistle of the reformer Martin Luther because this is the book that boldly liberates us from legalism by telling us that the only way a sinner gets right with God is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. A person is therefore not saved by grace and then lives by works. They are saved by grace and then live by grace. Paul goes so far to say that anyone who preaches a gospel other than salvation by grace through faith is to be accursed. Galatians chapter 1, 6-9 says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Galatians 3, 1-5 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law? or by hearing with faith. The answer to Paul's rhetorical question is that God does not save anyone by works of the law. He does it by His grace, which enables a sinner to respond to the gospel in faith. Paul continues in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11 and writes, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. I am now going to go slightly out of order of how these books appear in the Bible to talk about the prison epistles. By prison epistles, I am referring to the books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Paul wrote these four prison epistles while in jail. Why was Paul in jail? Well, if we go back to Acts 21, verses 27 to 36, we find the apostle in the temple in Jerusalem. To make a long story short, a mob scene breaks out, and Paul is arrested in the temple for preaching the gospel and associating with Gentiles. There is a threat to Paul's life from the Jews, but Paul appeals to Rome based on his Roman citizenship. Paul ends up going to Rome and is under house arrest for about two years before being released. While imprisoned, Paul writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. 
Overall, the prison epistles depict a composite view of the Christian life. Ephesians depicts the life of the church, or Christians working together under Christ. Colossians depicts Christ as the head of the church. Philippians depicts Christian life guided by Christ, and Philemon depicts Christian living in the midst of a non-Christian society. The first prison epistle we will talk about is Ephesians. The big idea of the book of Ephesians is the church, also known as the body of Christ. Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, which is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was an interesting city because there existed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. This massive structure was actually the largest Greek temple ever constructed, and Ephesus was famous for the silver statues of Diana that they produced there. Hence, it is this city that serves as the backdrop of the epistle that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head in heaven. We, as the church, are the body down here on earth. The heavenly head therefore guides and directs what the earthly body does. The body is not dead, but a living, breathing organism with many different members and many different parts that all work together under the direction of the head. Because Christ died for his church, as members of his church, now we live for him. As Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, we see that the church is not only the body of Christ, but it is also a temple. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us the mission statement of the church, which is to equip saints for the work of service and for the building up of the body of Christ. The result of this equipping is unity in the faith and an intimate knowledge of Jesus so that we grow from spiritual infants to adults. In a nutshell, then, what a church is primarily supposed to do is build people up so that they can truly know Christ and serve others so that they can know Christ. One church always has its focus on one person, Jesus, as Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 says. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In Ephesians chapter 5-6, to we read that the body of Christ does not just act like they are in church when they are in church. As transformed people with Christ as the head, he radically transforms all of our relationships, including the primary social unit of human civilization, the family. This radical new dynamic between husbands and wives and parents and children can only exist in the context of Christ being the head, not only in the church, but in the home. In fact, 
church really starts at home first, and what church really is are a conglomeration of families knit together under a unified banner. In anticipating that the high calling of the church will not be easy, but will rather be a tough fight, Paul ends Ephesians by telling us about the Christian's battle uniform, the armor of God. Our next book is Colossians, which complements the book of Ephesians. Ephesians talks about the church, the body of Christ, and the body looks up to the head. Christ is the head, so Colossians starts with Jesus and then looks down to the church. So, the big idea of the book of Colossians is the primacy of Christ. When I say the big idea of Colossians is the primacy of Christ, what I mean is that Paul makes it crystal clear that in Colossians, that Jesus is it. Christ is not just a guy, but is Lord and ruler over everything. There is therefore nothing to ever add or take away from Jesus because he is it. The Christian faith is Christ, and without Christ, you have nothing. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. Colossians was written to the church at Colossae in order to combat the Colossian heresy. We can infer what that heresy was based upon how Paul responds to it. Basically, the Colossian heresy was a form of Gnosticism, which is the oldest form of heresy there is. The Gnostics in Colossae were teaching that they had secret exclusive knowledge that others did not have. This made them better than everyone else. Furthermore, the Gnostics depicted Christ as a created being, not God. They subjugated Christ to something less than who He is, and who He is is God. Who He is is the cosmic Christ who is Lord over everything. If you listen to a Gnostic, Christ was reduced to a bunch of rituals or an interesting intellectual idea. Here, the object was never Christ, it was something else. Paul essentially responds to all of this by proclaiming the primacy of Christ. Because Christ's reign is cosmic, Jesus is it. You do not need Jesus and something else, neither do you take anything away from the cosmic Lord. As Colossians 1.13-20 says, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. Gnosticism is still around today and in many different flavors, so in a sense, the Colossian heresy is still alive and well. If you ever hear someone say something like, I don't worship Jesus as Lord, but I like what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, that's Gnosticism. That's taking away the Lordship of Christ. Christ is Savior and Lord, but no one who denies his Lordship will be saved. If you've ever heard someone say something like, you must follow these specific guidelines to be saved, that's Gnosticism. It's adding something to the gospel because Christ is not good enough. Colossians speaks about the primacy of Christ, that Jesus is it. Our next book is Philippians, which is commonly called the Epistle of Joy. And the big idea of the book of Philippians is the joy of the Christian life. Many say Philippians is the most uplifting book in the entire Bible, which is a statement that has some very strong support. In this epistle, Paul writes to the church at Philippi in order to thank them and express his affection for them. It is clear that Paul has a close relationship with the church, and this inspiring epistle contains no corrections or rebukes. Rather, Paul writes from the heart, filled with joy and love, for a church family that in turn loves him. Remember that Paul wrote Philippians while in jail. This tells us something. It tells us that ideally speaking, this is what the Christian life is supposed to be. A life filled with abounding, resilient joy in Christ, regardless of the circumstances. We have this joy because Christ never fails. The worst this life could ever do to you is kill you, but Jesus already defeated death. Philippians 1.6 says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul also exalts Christ as the example to be followed by everyone in that Christ emptied himself out for others so that God could lift him up. This is the example for us to follow to secure our joy in our walk here on earth. Philippians 2, 5-11 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our next book and the final prison epistle is Philemon. Philemon is only one chapter in the Bible, so I will be brief. In fact, instead of me giving you a summary of the book, you should just hit pause and read it yourself. Philemon was a believer who lived in Colossae. Onesimus was his slave who ran away. Onesimus subsequently met Paul and was converted. He then examined himself and had to reconcile with his conscience the fact that he fled. Paul knows Philemon, so he writes a letter and makes a plea for Onesimus. He pleads for Philemon to forgive Onesimus, take him back, and have mercy upon him. 
In short, then, Paul acts as a mediator between two parties in order to restore a fractured relationship. In the time in which this letter was written, slavery was a regular part of life in and around the Roman Empire. The book of Philemon thus talks about a slave and his owner, but it never talks about the institution of slavery. Why is that? Because this letter deals with the Christian life, not socio-political life. Because the Bible is not concerned with the institutions that surround the Christian per se. It is concerned how Christians respond in the midst of those institutions. The Bible is concerned that Christians imitate Christ and act in a Christ-like manner regardless of the government, political climate, or social institutions that surround them. What Philemon therefore tells us is that when it comes to Christians living in the midst of a pagan society, there is a Christ-centered freedom that liberates us from thinking and acting like the herd. Roman customs may have called Onesimus a slave, a piece of property owned by his slave master. What does Christ tell us? That in him, all of the elect are members of the body of Christ. We are now members of one family and are free to treat one another with love, regardless of what society says. Christ transcends culture, and Christ is the one who says all people are image bearers of God and therefore are to be treated with dignity, kindness, and respect. We have now finished talking about the prison epistles, and next time, in What Christians Should Know, episode 5.13b, I'll begin by speaking about the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.